Um, this morning, we are continuing, obviously, in our series that, if you can believe it or not, we are coming to the end of this series. We have spent the bulk of this year in this entire series just kind of looking at our identity in Jesus Christ. And remember why we began to do this and why we focused the majority of this year in this concept in kind of delving into our identity in Jesus Christ in that there are several important reasons why we are doing this and why we are going to continue to do this for the remainder of this year, although we only have about a month or so left before we kind of go into the Christmas season already, right? Have you noticed Christmas is coming? If not, go to Lowe's. <laughs> go to Costco, right? September, folks, they had Christmas trees out. I mean, that's crazy to me, right? Already September. And so we are we are coming into, if hard to believe, we are coming into the Christmas season. And so we are going to be closing or kind of winding down this series, but let's be, let's, let's remember why we are doing this, why we dedicated this year to this series of really kind of focusing ourselves and rooting ourselves into our identity in Jesus Christ, because we realize that if we don't, that we might be tempted to let other people or things around us define who we are. And, and that's just simply not a healthy thing to do. That is not simply a healthy thing to do, to let ourselves be defined by who we are in reference to those around us, or even more so, what we do or what we don't do. We are not defined by that, or rather, we should not let ourselves be defined by that, because that can be dangerous. We can receive things back that may be inaccurate about who we truly are. We can let ourselves be identified by those around us who may all of a sudden pour into us things that may not be true. Some things may be true, but believe me, sometimes, and trust me, we are not always, and we being humanity in general, are not always the best, best people to go to to understand who we might be. We just aren't. We just aren't the best, you know, source for that. We might have some glimpses in some, you know, a broken clock can be twice, can be right twice a day, right? So we can touch on some things that might be true, certainly. But it, in the end, it is not fully truth. And mixed in there are things that we may buy into that may be absolutely, completely inaccurate of who we truly are. Which is why I think it is so important that we also root ourselves, most importantly, into who we are in Jesus Christ. Who we are in Jesus Christ. That is most important. Here's the second reason why I think it is so important for us to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. is because what we let ourselves be defined by is often what we tend to worship. What we tend to let ourselves be defined by, we tend to now worship. That becomes the most important thing in our life. If you want to know what you worship, just ask yourself, what is the most important thing in your life? And chances are, that's what you may worship. That's what you may worship. And what is so interesting is I think that when we discover that we, you know, we have this desire to worship God and to worship only Him, and that's all, that is fantastic, that should be our goal. But if we're really true to ourselves, and maybe this sometimes we are just completely unaware, that there may be other things that truly we are loving more and therefore are worshiping more. And what is so interesting, I've seen this. I've been in pastoral ministry long enough. I've seen it in my own life, let alone other people's lives is God will often come in and take those things away. And we look at it as tragedy. And in that moment, it is. In that moment, it is hard. In that moment, it is grief and, and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is tragic. 
And oftentimes, though, what comes out of that is a reorientation, a re-rootedness. All of a sudden now to understand that isn't really what I should have been all about. I mean, think about this. In the time that I have been here as your pastor, we have been through the Great Recession. That hit early on in my ministry here. And, and we had people in our own body who not only lost their jobs, they lost their homes. Absolute tragedy. Never to minimize that. That is hard, hard stuff. But interestingly enough, is that many of those people, and some of you may be here today, some of you may be joining us online here today as well, is that what's so interesting is that many of them, many of those people that I have been able to talk to as they've come out of the experience, have come out of it thinking, oh, that is so much, that was probably the biggest blessing of my life. But at the moment, it isn't. And so here's the interesting thing about our relationship with Jesus Christ is that he wants us to root ourselves in him and how he defines us. And if there are times that we get away from that, there are maybe times that Jesus might allow this uprootedness of things that we think and that we might actually prize more than him to once again orient us back to him. That doesn't apply to every situation, so please hear me on that. But I think it applies to a lot. So it's really important, brothers and sisters, that we understand why this is so important, that we root ourselves in Jesus Christ. After all, I don't know about you, I would rather root myself in the, in the person who made me, in the person who knows me better than I know myself. And by the way, this person, this, this Savior, who actually went to the cross and died for me, so that I could have life in him. I don't know about you, but I can't, there is, I, some, some people might die for me. I don't know. It's never been put to the test. I don't ever want that to get put to the test, by the way, right? I, but, but nonetheless, here's what I do know is that Jesus Christ did die for me and he died for you. He died for us all so that we could have life in him. That's how much he loves us. And by the way, he didn't do that under any force or any sort of coercion by the Father. He did it willingly and voluntarily. He did it. Whom will I send? Send me. I'll do it. I love, I created these people. I love these people, period. So this morning, we're going to look at another identity statement. And the identity statement that we're going to look at today is simply this. I am a citizen of God's kingdom. I am a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, wrapped up in that statement, we're going to kind of break this statement apart this morning and kind of hopefully get a better understanding of what that means and why that's important and why we should root ourselves in the identity statement this morning. But it's really interesting. Our passage that I just read for us is going to be out of Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, if you have your phone um, bring your phone out, your tablet, whatever. If you just want to just, just be free and just look up at the screen behind me, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Whatever is your desire, do it. But we're going to be looking at this understanding of what it means to be a citizen in God's kingdom through the lens of Ephesians chapter 2. And what is so interesting about this book is that Ephesians in general is a beautiful, beautiful book because here's a, here's a couple of reasons why. Is that Paul spent 
three years in Ephesus with these people. He planted this church. Not only that, but when he went to Ephesus, he caused up quite a stir. He caused up a stir there because there was a, it, Ephesus was the home to a famous revered God among the Romans. And when he came in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, those that made money had a business based off the selling of relics and and images made in this God's image. Um, All of a sudden realized they were losing money because people were turning to Jesus Christ. All of a sudden now Paul has to be driven out of the city because of what he has done. But nonetheless, he, he loves these people. And as a result of his ministry there, there was churches that were planted. Churches as in plural. There was more than one, most likely, in Ephesus that was, that was planted there. And not only that, as Paul writes this book to the Ephesians, here's the, here's the interesting thing, is that not only did he love these people, but these people dearly loved Paul. So much so that when Paul, as he's writing this letter, by the way, he's in prison in Rome. He is soon to be martyred for his faith. But before, as he was making that journey to Rome, he stops off in Ephesus, which he knows is going to be the last time that he will see them and they him. And there is weeping on the shores before he is to board the ship to continue his journey to Rome. And so he is deeply loved by these people and he deeply loves these people. And here's perhaps maybe the biggest thing that might be so interesting about the book of Ephesians is there is no issue in these churches that he is addressing in this book. (sighs) there is nothing as far as we can tell yet go to revelation later on there's an issue there as he's writing you know john is writing to the seven churches one of the churches is ephesus there's there's issues later on but for right now at the moment paul is writing this letter not to address any specific issue he is just writing this letter to encourage them and to affirm them and to love on them and i don't know about you but that's a great letter to write Right? When there are oh, when there are no issues, life is beautiful. Amen? Do you ever go through a week and never look back and say, I think I got through a week with no issues? No, huh? <laughs> we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. Maybe you could just get through the day. I mean, I don't know about you, if as a pastor, let me just let you behind the curtain. When we can get through a week, a month, Maybe even a couple months with there being no major issues. That's the kind of letter I want to write. I just want to love on you. I want to affirm you. I want to encourage you. Paul is doing this here. And he's writing to this church. And he is going through and giving them a peek behind God's cosmic plan. Which until this point had been hidden. But now through Jesus Christ has been made known to everyone. And he is just encouraging me on this and saying, you all are a part of this plan and you need to know this. And perhaps while there was no big issue out there, perhaps there was some sense of some angst. Maybe there was some sense of some fear. Maybe there was some sense of, gosh, I don't know if this is worth it. Because here's the thing is that Paul is now affirming to them is that you are a part of God's family. And more than that, he uses the language, you are citizens in God's kingdom. You are a citizen. Now, Paul knew what he was writing about here when it came to citizenship, because Paul himself knew the value of citizenship. Not only did he have Roman citizenship, which by the way, was not by accident when Paul was chosen to go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. I love how God's plan works 
in just wonderful ways that the one person he could choose was a person who was a Pharisee and a Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen allowed Paul free travel of the Roman Empire. He could go anywhere he wanted to in the Roman Empire, and he could be protected as a Roman citizen. And by the way, Paul was never shy about using that card when he needed to. Right? I mean, he was, in, he was put in prison falsely. And, and all of a sudden, um, during, the mix, during that midst, he was put into prison because of, he was preaching the gospel. He said, oh, by the way, to his, to his jailers, is it lawful for you to, to jail a Roman citizen without due process, essentially? They freak out. Oh my gosh, Paul, we are so sorry. And Paul doesn't just take the apology. He says, no, 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 no. You come down here personally and you let me out. <laughs> Who says there's no joy in using your citizenship to your advantage? Right? That's what he does. He knew a thing or two about the importance of citizenship. Being a Roman citizen afforded him property rights, afforded him the opportunity not to necessarily pay local taxes. Imagine that, a citizen, you didn't have to pay taxes. Huh. Don't have that today. If you're a citizen, you have the right and the, well, not the right, the opportunity and the privilege of paying taxes. Amen? No, I didn't get an amen on that. Understandably so. <laughs> It's part of our responsibility, which is really interesting. When Jesus says about paying the temple tax, remember what the, the story is there when Jesus says to his disciples, is it the children who pay the tax? No, it's the foreigners. He was talking about the Roman tax. The Romans didn't tax their citizens, the local taxes. They taxed those whom they conquered. That's whom they taxed. And he says, nonetheless, go down, Peter, Grab a, you know, catch a fish, and in that mouth of the fish, you'll find the coin to pay the tax. Only Jesus could pay taxes in such a unique way. Right? And he did. Paid the temple tax. And so Paul is writing, but not only was Paul a Roman citizen, here's the thing, is he was also a Pharisee. He was also a Pharisee at one point. He was in the in crowd of the in crowd that you could be in as a, as a person, as a Jewish person in Israel in those days. He was revered, he was intelligent, he was learned, he was incredibly effective in terms of debating with people about the faith, and he was zealous for the Jewish faith. So much so, because of his Roman citizenship, he could travel all over and persecute those who had a faith in Jesus Christ, and he was not ashamed to do it. So he know, knew a thing or two about the importance of being a citizen and belonging because we know that as citizens, it affords us certain rights. As citizens, it affords us certain protections. As citizens, it affords us even certain identities. As citizens. But here's the thing. Paul himself would lose, because of his faith in Jesus Christ, in many ways, both of those privileges. He would be martyred by the Roman government for his faith. Many believe, obviously, beheaded because of his faith in Jesus Christ. But even before that all happened, he was ostracized from the Pharisees, from the group that he was once not only a part of, but in many ways was looked to as a leader of. He was now ostracized out of. So he kind of knew, I know what it's like to have it, I know what it's like to lose it. And in the end, I'd rather lose it than have it. Because as, as he once wrote, everything now that I had in my past, my education, where I belonged, who I was, I now consider what? 
Rubbish. That's the tame word. <laughs> the Greek word is skubalon. I'm not going to say that word, what it means today. But it's rubbish is a good word. Let's go with that. That's a nice G word. He considers it rubbish compared to everything that he now has in Jesus Christ. So he knew a thing or two about what it meant to be a citizen and to lose it. But more importantly, what it meant to be now a citizen in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. And here's the thing. I bet I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not saying this, that he was writing this to a group of people who, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they too have now lost their identity in something or someone else that they had placed their identity in. And it was hard. And so the message that we're going to look at today is a message I think... uh, that I think we also need to hear as he was sharing this with the people in Ephesus. And here's the question I want us to tackle today. What what does it mean? How is it that we can be citizens in God's kingdom? And secondly, what do we gain as a result of being a citizen in God's kingdom? Okay, those are the two questions we're going to attempt, I'm going to attempt rather, to answer. Okay, and here's the roadmap we're going to use. And go with me on this, okay? It's been two months since I've preached. Okay, have a little latitude, a little grace, okay, a um, little grace. Here's the roadmap we're going to do. Dennis looked at it this morning and says, oh, head hurts. So here it is. Jesus tore, Jesus bore, Jesus forms. That's it. Jesus tore, Jesus bore, Jesus forms. Those three things, I think, are the roadmap to help us understanding what does it mean for us to have citizenship in God's kingdom and what is it that we gain as a result of being citizens in God's kingdom. So we're going to take a look at those three things and kind of dissect and pull apart what that all means. So the first one is this, Jesus tore. What did he tear? Jesus tore. What did he tear? You all have answers today. I love it. Let's take a look at verse 14. You got a little chatty while I was gone. Now, maybe not. Verse 14, Ephesians chapter 2 says this. For he, that is Jesus, himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down or tore down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, here's the thing. He himself, that being Jesus, is our peace. Now, the Greek word there is very similar to the Greek word or the Hebrew word of shalom, right? Which is kind of that wholeness that peace that isn't just simply the absence of hostility, but as we're going to see, it's more the presence of kind of reconciliation, but even more than that. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. And here's the thing is what he did. And he goes on, he broke and who made both groups. What groups is Paul referring to? Real simple, Jews and Gentiles. Two groups. By the way, in Paul's world, you defined people either two ways in two categories either you're a jew or you're not period that was it either you are a jew or you're a gentile there is no in between okay either you are a jew or a gentile that's it the two groups and and goes on and he says this and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall huh question what is the barrier of the dividing wall What was the barrier or is the barrier that divides these two groups that Jesus tore apart? And remember, how many of us are thinking that veil in the Holy of Holies, the temple, right? Oh, the the, the barrier between us having access to, to God himself. Yes, that's part of it. 
Not, not the full picture of it, but that's part of it. Here is what Paul, I believe, is referring to when he says the barrier that was torn down. The barrier is the law. The law. The Ten Commandments. Okay? The Ten Commandments. By the way, whenever you list the Ten Commandments, how many of you go King James? Thou shalt not have any gods before me. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt... Right? We go old school on that stuff. It kind of gives it a certain kind of... Yeah, weighty gravitas to it, right? Some sort of a third, some sort of authority. I'm like Cecil B. DeMille's, or you know, you know, the Ten Commandments kind of thing. Yes, I even saw that movie. That was a pretty good movie for its time, wasn't it? Um, great effects, right? Um, it, it's just amazing. It kind of just gives that 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 weightiness. That that is just a symbol of just how weighty the, the law really is. It is a barrier. Not only does it separate us from God, it separates us from one another, particularly Jew and Gentile in this case, as Paul is talking about. Here's why. And by the way, the results is still the same. The Jews had the law. The Gentiles didn't. The Jews are the chosen people of God. The Gentiles are not. The Jews are whom the Savior comes from. The Gentiles do not have a Savior that comes from their group. And so this law, in other words, the Jews know the heart of God and the Gentiles do not. Have you ever encountered people or groups of people who are on the in crowd and those who are on the out crowd? Come on, y'all. Y'all went to school, right? Y'all went to school. There was the in group and then there were the all the others as though they had some sort of special knowledge and special bond and the rest of us, and I'm including the us because I was never part of the in-group. If I could somehow kind of infiltrate at times, that was great, <laughs> right? I could try to infiltrate that group, but I was not a part of the in-crowd. I mean, look at me. Do I look cool? Don't answer that. <laughs> okay? I mean, I was not a part of the in-crowd, but there was the in-crowd, they were good looking, they were athletic, they were smart. I was none of that. I was none of those things. And so it was just, the law was a barrier. There were those who followed it, and there were those who did not. But here is the thing that is interesting about this barrier. Is the barrier not only set up an us-them dynamic, that we have the law and they don't, that we are God's chosen and they are not. We are holy, they are not holy. We are ones who know Jesus or know God rather, and they are the ones who do not know God at all. They are heathens, and we are blessed. Sound familiar? Yeah? I mean, here's the thing is that here's the here's the reality though, is that regardless, and this is what Paul is, I think, kind of getting in the spirit of this is that he tore, that Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, tore down this barrier of the law. And what that means is, guess what? You all are in the same group. Because those of you Jews who try to follow the law, you fall short and still end in death. And you Gentiles who don't follow the law still end in death. The result is the same. Jews, you can't fulfill it. And you Gentiles can't even follow it. You're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter. And so the barrier torn down is Paul is saying, guess what? Because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, guess what? All of a sudden now, we're all the same. We all face death. 
We can never fully fulfill the law. But Jesus can. We can never fully be obedient to Jesus and to God the Father. But Jesus can. We can never live up to the standards, not only the written law, but the intentions behind the law. And by the way, if you need reminding, Jesus himself reminded us, you have heard it said, Sermon on the Mount stuff, right? That do not commit adultery. But I tell you the truth, if you even think in your mind of committing adultery, you have broken the law. Oh, snap. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. And Jesus says, but if you even think hatred towards your brother or your sister or another person, you have committed murder. Oh, snap. Seriously. Jesus, I thought you came to make it easier on me. No, 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 no. I'm going to make it even harder, and then I'm going to take it away. I'm going to tell you how hard this law is, and then I'm going to do something beautiful. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to tear down that barrier. All of us are in the same boat. All of us. Jews, Gentiles, we're all going to die. We can't fulfill God's law, and we can't even follow God's law completely. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. And so Jesus tore down that barrier so that we could have a way forward into new life and to not being all of a sudden subjected to the law and its penalties that's the beautiful thing about it that's the barrier it's the law it's the law now brothers and sisters i have to say this because almost every time that this is mentioned i think there are many of us myself included are tempted to think oh i don't have to fulfill the law time out okay the law doesn't save you but what we are free to do is try, in, in, instead of, we are, we are free to not try to kind of fulfill every aspect of the law, but rather we are free to live in obedience to Jesus because of his sacrifice, not trying to rather impress him by saying, I can fulfill the law. So one thing we gain as being citizens of God's kingdom is that we are free. We are free of the burden of trying to fulfill the law. We are free of the burden of trying to impress Jesus and God the Father and saying, I can do this, Jesus. Send me. I can do this. I can fulfill the law. Jesus encountered a rich young ruler who thought he was fulfilling the law, right? You remember that story? And says, hey, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you must follow the commandments. I do that. Oh, you do. Okay, one other thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Uprootedness. I'm going to take that away. Because I want to plant you in identity through me, not through what you have. What did the rich young ruler do? Couldn't do it. You know what is interesting to me about that story? Is Jesus let him go. Jesus let him go. Jesus never forces himself on anyone. And in this case, he let that rich young ruler go. He didn't try to persuade him further. Jesus tore that barrier, brothers and sisters, so we can be free of the burden and the penalties of the law. 
And now all of a sudden we try and we follow the law, not to impress Jesus, but because he calls us to do it. We do it in obedience to him, gratitude to him, because we follow him. We are free. That's one benefit. Here's the second one. Jesus bore. Verses uh, 15 through 18 says this. Uh, By abolishing in his flesh the hostility which is the law, there it was, composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person, and in this way establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, as well as peace to those who were near." For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Here's the thing. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, as we see here what Paul writes. Rather, peace is the presence of harmony. Harmony in relationships between us and God, as well as between each other. Okay? And in many ways, what you see here is the essence of, or the result of the gospel. I think sometimes as Christians, we run into a problem of only emphasizing one aspect of the gospel. Believe in the gospel, you know, if you accept the gospel, you'll be saved from your sins. Right? How many of us have, have, have accepted the gospel based on that premise? You'll be saved from your sins. Salvation is there through the gospel. You will be saved. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's only half of the gospel. That's only half of it. Now, don't cast me out yet. I haven't gone off the deep end quite yet, at least as far as I know. Here's the other half. Salvation as well as reconciliation. That's the other half of the gospel. Not only are we saved from our sins, but now we are reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And not only that, we now are given the ministry of reconciliation to go out into the world and help reconcile others to not only God the Father, but also with one, with one another. We are there to reconcile. And in the end, when you have salvation and reconciliation, guess what you have now as a result of the gospel? Redemption. That's the point of the gospel. To be redeemed. Redemption is salvation and reconciliation. That's redemption. That's the point, I believe, of the gospel. That is what I believe Paul is writing here. Is that not only we are free, but guess what? We are now redeemed as a result of being citizens in God's kingdom. We are redeemed. I love what one pastor writes about the Christian gospel, and he writes the following. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And this leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I love that. Swaggering and sniveling. And I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Did you see the two dynamics there? Salvation and reconciliation. Did you see the relational dynamics there? Do you know what makes for good relationships, brothers and sisters? Let me just share with you what I think makes for good relationships. Humility. 
not acting all hot and high and with a swagger and with ego and with all of those things. Humility is absolutely essential for healthy relationships. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's rather thinking of ourselves less. The problem with humility is once you realize you have it, it's gone. Right? Once you realize you have humility, it's gone. Did you see both there? Yes, Jesus came to save us and he came to reconcile us. And both are needed. That's the gospel, the wholeness of the gospel. And that's what Jesus has birthed as a result of what he tore down. And as citizens of his kingdom, we are not only free, but we are now also redeemed. And you know what hurts me sometimes, church? Is when I see us as Christians doing more to divide than to reconcile. When I see us doing more to provide and sow seeds of hate and discord than when I see us doing and sowing seeds of unity and peace. It pains me to see that. Let me just say this at the risk of being cast out. We are coming into another election season, brothers and sisters. This is an opportunity of us to show some peace and unity. Instead of going to our corners and start having unhealthy discord, arguments, fighting, all of divisions that can result from that. Amen? Amen. This is our opportunity to be the church. This is our opportunity to show what redemption looks like. This is our opportunity to actually show the gospel to a world and specifically in America as we come into this election season. Every opportunity we have for the gospel is present before us if we just recognize it. It's there. We can show the world we are citizens of God's kingdom. Here's the last one. Jesus forms. Now, this, is, this was supposed to be originally my passage I was supposed to preach on, but I called it outside the lines today. Um, verses 19 through 22. This is where I'm really supposed to land, but ah, I just couldn't do it. So then, because you've got to answer, who's the so then? What's the so then? Right? Well, you've got to back it up and like, oh my gosh, I could go to verse 1 of chapter 2. Can't do that. Well, I could, but you would be here for a while. So then, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Listen to that. Strangers and foreigners, two separate groups. Strangers were oftentimes looked at with great suspicion and with great caution because they were often viewed as though that they would bring harm, that they would, they, they, they would do something criminal or whatever else. And foreigners. Foreigners were often not looked at that way necessarily in the people from, from the Jewish people's perspective. But nonetheless, they were not full Jews, but nonetheless, they were somewhat welcomed in their land. Okay, Paul is talking about those two groups. And he says this, he says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Interesting to the Jewish people who are the strangers and the foreigners, the Gentiles. Don't let them in. They're going to cause great harm and division. Don't let them in. They're going to make us unholy. Don't let them in. They're going to, they're going to just kind of just destroy us there's great fear and what does paul write he says guess what jesus tore down those barriers we're all on the same boat when it comes to sin and destruction and death under the law 
We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. So therefore, we are all in need of Jesus. And as a result, every single one of us, strangers and foreigners, as well as those who know God, are now fellow citizens and saints and are God's household. Fellow citizens and saints. Saints and citizens. Saints and citizens. That's what we are, church. Saints and citizens. And it goes on and says this. Having, so then, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. In other words, what Paul does here is beautiful. Did you catch it? He takes the building, the temple, the place where God himself dwells, to a Jewish person, perhaps the most important place of worship in anywhere in the world. And he flips it on its head and says, guess what? The temple isn't the building. The temple is whom? Jews and Gentiles under one banner under Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, who have now been reconciled and have been brought into peace, who have been now redeemed because they have been saved as well, have now been coming together and form the temple. That's the temple, church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I could get, I'm not going to. Oh, we got, we got to work on our eschatology in case you know what that means, church. That means the last days. There's a belief out there that unless the temple is, I'm going there. <laughs> that if the temple is not rebuilt in Jerusalem, that Jesus Christ won't come. It's not the temple. The temple is, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, under the banner of Jesus Christ, who tore down that barrier, who has now made us one and brought peace, that's the temple, church. And we are part of it. Did you ever think of that? Did you ever think about the fact that you are a part of God's temple? That you and I, we're a part of God's temple. A beautiful mosaic a picture of unity and peace. That's gorgeous. We're the temple. It's beautiful. We don't need this building to worship, in case you didn't know that. By the way, there's a lot worse, you know. I, I, I come from Wisconsin, right? I mean, there are people, 60,000 people, that will sit at an open-air stadium in Lambeau Field and watch a football game for four hours in the bitter cold, you ask people to worship outside for an hour. <laughs> you think we had crucified Jesus all over again. But church, we're the temple. We're the temple. This is what Jesus is doing. He is forming everyone who knows him, who's accepted him, who calls him Lord and Savior as a part of the temple that he is fashioning together. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. This citizenship is open to everyone. No one is counted out. No one. Period. Period. I love what 1 Peter 2.5, Peter takes this imagery. He goes on and he says this. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And finally, John